Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. It's very precious to us. And there's so much in this, in these short few verses. It's just packed with truth that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Things that are important for us during this Christmas season. God, there's no one really has this message but Christians. No one's going to say this this time of year if it doesn't come from us. Help us to be clear. Help us to be vocal. Help us to be so in love with you. We are so excited to share the good news of Jesus Christ and that we understand why Christ had to come. And may that be very clear in all that we say and do this morning, God. Would you just speak to every heart? Whatever is on our minds and hearts, God, and whatever thing might be troubling us, whatever thing might be um, a burden, a discouragement, or even just screaming for our attention, can the Holy Spirit, we ask you to just help us to let push those things aside and just hear your word and receive so that we can know how worthy you are to be worshipped and praised. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to um, begin by... Uh, just saying, I, I, we as Christians, we really have a responsibility and obligation to be ones that would declare uh, what the message of Christmas is about, all about. And one of the things we want to say that Christmas is no accident. Uh, it's, um, it was intentional. The entrance of the Son of God into human history was perfectly lined up. And that's what this passage in Galatians 4 is telling us, that it's perfectly aligned. And I think if Romans 8.28 is true, Romans 8.28 says um, that God works all things according um, uh, for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He works everything. And the question is, how can He do that? How can He work everything? How can He make everything work out for good if He's not in charge of everything? And so that's something where we would say, call that the, the sovereignty of God, or a term we don't use as much anymore, but the providence of God. The providence of God means God's overarching control and working all things according to the plan that He has, according to the end result that He wants. And so that's what a great view we have of God. God is so mighty. God is so um, wise. God is so powerful and he is our sovereign king. And that's the basis whereby this passage uh, is going to be discussed. So I want, I want to mention ten things out of this text. Ten things that are, I want you to forever kind of have them in your mind connected to the birth of Jesus. Like why did Jesus come? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we make such a big deal about the birth of Jesus? And I want you to hear that, understand it. And also know that there's a connection between, there's a direct line in our mind between the birth of Jesus and the um, crucifixion and resurrection. Like we see, you can't separate those. Without, without the resurrection, there's no reason for us to get excited about Jesus coming to die or being born. Because the resurrection is our hope. But without the birth of Jesus, the resurrection wouldn't occur. And so we just tie those together. When we think of the life of Christ, life, death, and resurrection, in our minds as believers, all that's tied together. All that had to happen. There can't be a piece of that missing. So the first thing I want to talk about is the perfect timing of Christ's birth. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come. 
Just that little phrase. Another way to say it was in the perfect moment, the exact moment, at the precise, pre-planned, organized, structured moment, Christ came. And God controls, and it's in this display that God controls and directs human history. That's what Galatians 4 is saying. God controls human history. And at just the right time in history, Jesus was born. So some would argue that we know of Jesus because he just happened to come along at the right time and the circumstances lined up so that he became famous and that's not what the Bible teaches. I'll give an example. Uh, Sometimes people claim that the Protestant Reformation, this great revival occurred because at at just so happened that at the time the Bible was being translated in the common language. The Gutenberg printing press just so happened to be um, invented. And that the Reformation didn't really occur because God's Word was so powerful, but because the Gutenberg printing press enabled the, God, the Bible to be translated and spread throughout. Um, the, the, the biblical response to that is, the reason the Gutenberg printing press was invented is because God was getting ready to create the Reformation and the outpouring. You see, one person sees an explanation devoid of God, and the other person sees God as the reason for it happening. So Christianity, it's not that we discovered someone named Jesus that just happened to come along at the right time in history. It's that history exists in order to display Jesus. It wasn't an accident. Okay, so the Bible presents history as God directing, not God reacting. Old Testament prophecies, like Genesis 12, 3, it's the prophecy that said, uh, there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament and they're all, many of them are um, predictive or um, they are foretelling They're telling something before it happens, and they're not God taking his best guess. They're letting us know what God has planned. It's a very different, uh, very different strategy or or idea. So um, there's a passage in Ephesians 1 that captures this in verse 1, chapter 111, in him. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Let me repeat that last little bit. Who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Jesus Christ was born by the will of God who works everything according to His will in just the right moment. So the first thing we see... Or, or another way for me to say that is God is not a passenger of history. He's the pilot. Okay, very different. And so the first thing is we see the perfect timing of Christ's birth. So hopefully you appreciate that when you look at the Bible and you go, man, God lined all this up. It's not accidental. It's like, oh, well, maybe someone else would have been the star. You know how people say, well, someone came along at just the right moment and that's how they became successful or They had the right connections. Uh, This isn't one of those things. When Jesus, when we think of Christmas, when we think of the birth of Jesus, you need to think of the amazing timing of God. 
everything culminated in this event. And the same thing's going to happen when Jesus returns. It's not accidental. What's playing out in history right now, what's going on in Israel or any nation in the world right now is under the direction of God Almighty. And He has got a clock. And it won't miss a beat. And it's going to go as He has determined. So that gives us great confidence. And so even when we look at this little baby Jesus and people go like, what's the big deal? And it's like, no, it was enormous. And it was the divine wisdom and counsel of God. Okay? Secondly, the divine nature of Christ's birth. We talked about the perfect timing, the divine nature of Christ's birth. In Galatians 4 it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The Son of God. What does it mean to be the Son of God? To be the Son of God means that God has, we know from the Gospel, uh, that's the way it's described in John 3.16, for God gave His only Son. God has one Son. Um, we can be children of God in an adoptive manner, by adoption, but Jesus is the only true Son of God. So when God calls Jesus His Son, and Jesus refers to God as His Father, and then says the Father and I are one, there's a, a distinction, it's a unique relationship. And that little baby that was born in Bethlehem was God. Jesus is God. Um, I don't know, there might have been a baby born over in Harris Hospital today. It was not God. Um, my daughter is expecting our first grandchild, which is pretty thrilling. So thrilled. But he's not God. I don't place my eternal hope in that little boy. I'm going to love him. I already love him. I already like to rub her belly. I can do that because I'm her dad. But I love that little kid already. But that little kid cannot save me. The baby that was born on Christmas Day is the, is the God of the universe who wants to save you. He came and he purposely, intentionally entered into human experience, into the human world, in order to save you from hell. That's how special it is. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating. Our hope is in that little one that's born. It's like, he's going to save me from hell. He's going to save me from judgment. He's going to save me from my sins. He's going to save me from this world that's um, going down. He's going to save me from my anger, from my disease, from my sickness, from my health, spiritual, emotional. He's going to save me from my wounds. I'm putting all my hope in that little baby. Okay? You, you see what we're doing? Um, so the divine nature of Jesus, um, he is fully God. Okay, thirdly, we see the human nature of Christ's birth. This little baby that is God's son is also fully human. Um, he wasn't just pretending to be human. He didn't just put on a human jacket and says, look at me, I'm pretending. It wasn't a costume. And some people treat the divinity, the humanity of Jesus like a costume. And he's like, put it on. And it's like, but he didn't really experience pain, suffering. He didn't really cry as a child. Yes, he did. He entered completely and fully into humanity. Jesus, the little baby, was God, and that little baby was, and God, that little baby, Emmanuel, was also um, fully human. For centuries, God allowed animal blood 
to appease his wrath through the sacrificial system. And that's why they brought animals and, and cut their throats and bled them out was to make sure we understood how serious sin is. That something literally had to die because of my sin. Things had to die and then they had to keep doing it over and over again all through the Old Testament. Um, constantly, people were constantly a trail of blood, constantly leading a trail of life, leading to the tabernacle and then a, a trail of blood leaving away because of sin. That constant message that sin brings death. Sin brings death. And they had to keep doing that. Why? Because it wasn't working. It wasn't enough. They had to do it over and over. Animal blood cannot atone for human sin. It only appeased the wrath of God for a time. But it never appeased. No one has ever been saved by animal blood. No one. Only by the blood of Jesus. And until Jesus came... It was in anticipation. Like God would not have tolerated that if he hadn't known that Christ was coming. In other words, it wasn't like man's best effort was never going to be good enough. Drag all the bulls and goats you want to. Thousands sometimes. Still never atoned one sinner. One, not even one sinner got into heaven when Solomon sacrificed, what, 120,000 animals or something? Some ridiculous, absurd number. Not even one sinner, all that blood, made his way into heaven only because Christ was coming. Not because of the sacrifices that had been made, but Christ had to become human in order to spill human blood. And it had to be perfect human blood, and none of us passed the test. All of us are sinners. And so Christ came to atone for my sin. When I look at that little Jesus, I'm like going, how it breaks my heart when I think um, this beautiful little child is going to have to be killed for me and offered to me. And he grew up to be the Son of the um, Savior, but it, it started there, and I'm like going, what a, what a sacrifice that God is giving us when you think of, of this. Jesus was fully man, but he had to take human nature upon himself to be born of Virgin Mary and die for us. So that's what I see at Christmas. Do you see that? You see that at that beautiful baby that we celebrate, the coming of the one that would die for our sins. And then number four, the legal nature of Christ's birth. It was a legal action. It was perfectly legal. It was required actually. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That word under the law, if you can picture the law being over you, towering over you and you're under it. Like when you go into, when you step into a car and you start riding around car, you're under the law. And there's speed limits. And if you, um, you can, there's a little bit of leeway in there. And, you know, people try to guess how many miles an hour can I go over without getting in trouble. But if they want to be a strict interpretation, the law is like right there. And the law says, well, you were 56, it's 55. Um, it, I mean, they could. They have a legal, they could, they could do that. Most of the time they don't. There's some, there's some grace period in there. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever been arrested for like going one mile an hour over. Uh, but they, legally they could. But most of the time it's like maybe five minute, five mile an hour cushion, 10 mile an hour over. I, I don't know if it's still the case, but I think in North Carolina at 20 over you lose your license. You st I don't know. Is, is that still it? I, I wouldn't know. I've never done anything like that. Um, but 
Um, I've heard about it. I've heard about it. Um, but the law is over us. The law is hanging over us. And the law is over us and it's heavy. It's weighty. And if you've read the law of God, it's very precise. It's very detailed. It takes every possible imaginable area of life and you're under it, under the, the authority, under the weight of the law. Every thought that goes through your mind, every word that comes out your mouth, every action you've ever committed is under, you're under it. The whole time in your life, you're under this law and the law is judging you. The law is condemning you. Every time you break the law, it's recorded, it is written, it's remembered in the law, creating this long list of infractions and violations and it's over you and it gets heavier and heavier and the more you sin, the heavier this load is of the law. And I don't like being under the law. Um, the law is crippling, it's crushing, it's a curse. The curse of the law is when you break the law, it becomes a curse. Its penalty is death. Death is hanging over those people who are still under the law. But it's, it was, it's completely legal. Um, completely legal. There's moral, ceremonial, civil laws in the Old Testament. And no one has ever been able to keep the law. No one's ever even come close. No one's even come remotely close. But that's what Jesus had to do. And it says he placed himself under the law. Jesus, who's the lawmaker, he's the one in authority. He is the one who wrote the law, gave the law, spoke the law. When we say the law of Moses, we're, we're really just meaning Moses had a part, a part in it, but it's really the law of God. It's really the law of Christ. It's really Moses didn't think of it. He just was the instrument of God that God, he just happened to be the one God used, but it's the law of God. And so the law of God, Jesus who made the law, had to come and place himself under the law. So it's, it was legal, completely legal. Everything, our salvation is legal. It's very important to know. It stands up in the highest court of God that we have been uh, delivered in the highest court of God. We're under the law and Jesus came under the law. He came to get us and rescue us. So he had to come under the law and he had to meet every detail. And I'm sure some of you read the Bible. Some of you read uh, the law of God. You've read the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. And then you've read m the meticulous laws that were there for the sacrificial system, all the things they had to do. Uh, you've probably read Jesus' teaching on the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's um, so deep that no one could possibly, if anyone who has ever read the Sermon on the Mount and thinks that they're a good person had completely misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount exposes that there is none righteous, no, not one. If you even so much as think an adulterous thought, you're an adulterer. If you are deceptive, then you're a liar. If you have hatred to a sermon, you're a murderer. It's like Jesus' teaching of the law is so heavy and weighty that it's impossible that anyone could possibly imagine that they've kept the law. But Jesus, knowing the law as he did, came to keep it to the complete detail. Every, every dot, every letter crossed. He had to keep the law. He placed himself under it in order to fulfill every possible scenario of sin. And the Bible says that he, he did it. He did it. That little baby came into this world to place himself under the law to save you who are under the law. He had to go. It's like a fireman going into the fire to get you. He had to go into the fire to get you. He went into the fire and he laid down his life in the fire. 
He placed himself under the law and then accepted the penalty of the law on your behalf. And so he went into the fire. The fire burned him in order that he might bring you out. And he had to rise from the dead. Um, that's the legal nature. Um, in, in James 2.10 it says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all or guilty. So like a lawbreaker. So Jesus had to keep every point. One mistake. That's all Satan was trying to get Jesus to make. One sin. One mistake. The Pharisees were looking for one mistake. One clear violation. And they couldn't even find one and they had to make up one. And they had to hire someone and find someone to lie. They had to make someone commit a sin to imply that Jesus had committed a sin. But he hadn't committed a sin, so they were sinning in saying that Jesus had sinned. It, Jesus was above the law, and he, he did that for you. He went, in, he went into that for you. That little baby that we celebrate. He's not just a cute little cuddly, cooey Jesus. He went under the law in order to deliver, to deliver you. <clears throat> Number five, the redemptive nature of Christ's birth. So the purpose behind it, it was redemptive. He went under the law to redeem us. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He, he came to save. Jesus came to rescue the perishing. He was like a, a um, as I said, like a fireman risking his life to save our lives. In 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So Jesus came a baby to come get you, to redeem you. So that there's this redemptive nature to take the sentence. And then six, the adoptive nature. He came to adopt you, to bring you into the family of God. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Aren't you, is anyone glad God adopts? Glad ado I'm glad God adopts. He wouldn't have any children if He didn't. God adopts. Is there anyone here, last service I, I made mention, we have some people in our church right now who are doing foster care. And uh, I don't know if there's anyone here right this second. Um, we had several this morning. And there are people right now who are appealing to the courts because they have gone to rescue some kids that are in some bad spots. And they're praying for them and they've loved on them and now they're even asking God to help them if God would be pleased to give them legal rights. Is, is there anyone, anyone here? Yeah, right here. Christian, your family. And we had a few. Can, can I say that find out who they are and pray for them? And pray for God's will to be done. And pray for them to be raised up so that they can become children of God. So that they can hear the gospel. That they will be brought up in a home where they will be loved. And they will begin to learn about the ways of God. Because that's what happened when God brought you to church. He wanted to adopt you. And someone fostered you and they brought you. And then you could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you begin to hear about the kingdom of God. And you begin to learn that there was someone who wanted to adopt you. You sinner. You sinner, far from God. And someone wanted to adopt you, and that is Jesus Christ. He came and entered into human, the human experience, and he was willing to place himself under the law because he, he, he wanted you to know the love of his Father. He came to be your elder brother. He came to save you. He came to put himself because he wanted you to be adopted. He wanted you to know the love of God. He wanted 
you to call God Abba Father. He wanted you to be part of the family of God. And he had to go to such an extreme uh, depth to do that. And he wanted, to be, he wanted it to be uh, legal, fully legal. So an adoption goes like this. If you want to adopt someone, the legal system requires that the person who has legal rights has to give them up. Whoever has the legal right, it could be in some instances the state, it could be a relative, it could be the parents, but you can't adopt legally unless the person legally is willing to lay down that right. And then you have to legally um, take up that right. You have to be willing legally to sign your name, your life, your finances, your resources, your commitment in order to legally adopt. In God's situation, in order for Jesus and God the Father to adopt you, He had to give His Son to die a horrible death for you. And, and that part's done on God's side in the courtroom of God, fully legal. This is important. That's why Jesus had to do this. In order for you to be adopted, you had to, the person who has, um, the person who wants to adopt you is God. And in order to make it legal, God had to meet the legal requirements. And the legal requirements is that someone would have to give their life and blood, pure, 100% pure human blood, would have to be spilt and sacrificed to overcome the, the debt before you could be adopted. And that's what Jesus did. And so God is the adopting party. And the interesting thing is God is also the judge. So again, the perfect legality of this in the courtroom of heaven, it stands. It stands. There's no higher court. The highest court says, God says, I've made a provision to adopt you. But in this situation... You're the, you're the cause in your court. With a little child, the child is dependent upon a family willing to receive. But in this point, you're the, you're, like, you're the little child. You're the one that needs adopting. But you're also the adult in the room. God has set this situation up this way. You want, God wants to adopt you. And He's taking care of the legal side. There's only one legal transaction left. You have to sign over your rights to Him. That's faith. You, you renounce your allegiance to Satan and, God, and Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, this world, this world system, and love of self. And say, I give my rights to you. Come I give the title of my heart to you. And so this legal transaction is occurring. But I want you to understand that Jesus came to make God's side of the equation legal and finished. Jesus said, it's done. We can adopt now. And now he's just simply looking to you to say, do you want to be adopted? Do you want God as your father? Because it's perfectly legal and it's irretractable. 
this side's been signed in the blood of Jesus. And this side is just the door to your heart. And he says, open the door to your heart. And at that moment, it's legal. Yes, Jesus, I take you. I want to be your child. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's covered. So sufficient and powerful is the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done. It covers. It covers you. Whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever kind of person you are, whatever your past is, whatever crimes you committed, whatever hurt you've experienced, whatever things you've gone through, so powerful is the legal righteousness of Jesus that it stands in the eternal courtroom of God. It's all paid for. No matter your past, no matter what you're going through right now, and the, the, um, the one who wants to adopt you is just simply asking, are you ready to make this legal? No more pretending. No more church hopping. No more, um, I like religion. No more, it's not legal just because you're interested. It's not legal because you come to the adoption agency week after week after week. It's not legal because you say his name. It's not legal because you read his book. It's not legal because you have Christian friends. It's not legal because you have Christian parents. It's not legal until you open your heart and sign your heart over to Jesus and say, Lord God, let's make it legal. And so maybe there's someone here today and you're just like, I just need to, I want to make this legal, fully legal. I want to give my, I want to give my, my, my life to God. Okay, so there's the adoptive nature. And I, I want to mention the spiritual nature. He says that he'll put the Holy Spirit in you. So you can't get more spiritual than that. It says, and because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in every believer. You can be born of the Spirit. You can have the Spirit in your heart. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Did you know that? Some people are Christians and they don't really know everything they got. One of the things that you got was the Spirit of God, the indwelling of the Spirit. That means you can walk in the Spirit. You can be filled with the Spirit. You can pray in the Spirit. You can sing in the Spirit. You can worship in the Spirit. You can listen to the Spirit. You can bear the fruit of the Spirit. You have gifts from the Spirit of God. And this wonderful presence has taken up residence in you. In Romans 8, 11, it says, As the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give you life to your immortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. John 3, 3, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus said, you must be born again, which means you must be born of the Spirit. And so, does anyone like that? That, the little, that little baby came that you might be filled with the Spirit, born of the Spirit. He was born of the flesh that you might be born of the Spirit. Isn't that, isn't that sweet? He was born a human baby that you might be born a spiritual baby. And when you see Jesus, just like, man, he's just like the whole package. Everything I need. Everything I need was in that little baby being born. And as he, everything that needed to take place, he was going to do. God was committing his son to this. 
task. And one of those things is he wanted me to be filled with the Spirit of God. I need the Spirit of God. I need His wisdom. I need His help. I need His conviction. I need to be convicted sometimes. Do you know, before I became a Christian, I got to the point where I could sin and it didn't even bother me anymore. I could do certain sins. I had, I had a list. It's like, oh, that's too far. But I had categories of sins that I was comfortable committing these sins. It's like, no big deal. Not that big a deal. Everybody does it. I could just, I could dismiss my sin. And then the Spirit of God came into my life and I can't dismiss them anymore. It convicts me. I feel, I feel convicted. And it's like, oh man. And then when I'm running from God at first, I don't like it. I don't like it. But then when I realize what He's doing, He's, he's convicting me of my sin in order that I might get rid of it. He's like calling it out of me. It's like, we need to get rid of this. And then I'm pretty miserable until I do. It's kind of like, the, you know, before you vomit and that last little stretch, it's like you really feel awful. You feel like right at the end, you just feel so awful and you finally get it out. And that's the way sin is. And that's what the Holy Spirit, one of the things, the Holy Spirit encourages you when you're down. He teaches you things. He helps you understand the Word of God. He makes you want to sing and praise God. And then... Number eight is the verbal nature of the Spirit uh, of Christ, the verbal nature of Christ's death. Like He comes to us so that we can call God Abba, Father. It says, God has sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He puts a new song in your mouth. And love to praise God. And that little, that little baby came to build up God's praise team. It's like that little baby is there. Why? Because God wants worshipers. People who love Him and acknowledge Him and praise Him and just love to sing His praise and lift up His name. Do, do, can you get excited? Can some of you get excited about praise? Can some of you get excited about a big gathering? Is that like excite you? It's like there's lots of voices. You get it, can, can you not get excited about a little gathering? Awesome. The Spirit of God is there and like there's a little group and people are just praising the name of God. And you're like going, man, I'm so sweet. I'm so glad I was there. Can you not get excited when you find out someone's a new Christian and they're suddenly they're, they go from um, watching from a distance to participating and like you see someone's life change and they're like joining the heavenly choir and they're like praising God and people are beginning to call God of a father. And they're getting vocal and they're sharing their faith and, and they're praying and they're praying with people and their mouths just begin, their stuff comes out, their mouth begins to change. When the Spirit comes in, what comes out changes. And you begin to watch this powerful change and that's what Jesus came to do. So when we're celebrating Christmas, we're celebrating that Jesus wants to raise up people and set them free from the bondage of the law and let them be filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to praise God because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to begin this great work of God and then He began to pour out the Spirit and He began to set people free. This little baby, and that's the ninth point, the liberating nature of Christ's birth, is Christ came to liberate. He was born to liberate people. This little baby came to be a mighty liberator. He came under the law to set people free. So this little baby, this, think about that little baby as the chain breaker. That little baby is the slave liberator. That little baby is the prison buster. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus came to do that for you, my friend. When you're celebrating Jesus and you think about baby Jesus, don't get this notion of this little innocent little baby who's weak and this little baby came to be a conquering king. He came to set you free. He came to, he came to save you. You're not there like going, oh, I want to give gifts to Jesus. He's what he's coming to do for you. You can give him gifts, but not his little baby Jesus, a mighty conquering king. That's, that's who he came to be. And so see him in that way. And the last thing I want you to do is to see the riches he came to bring you. That little baby came to make you rich. But it's very important that you not get this confused. At the end it says that um, people are crying, Abba, Father. And then it says um, he was born to make you an heir of Christ's riches. An heir is a person legally entitled to the property or rank of another Christ died to make you an heir. And it says uh, here in Galatians 4, it says, So you are no longer a slave, he came to set you free, but a son, that's your adoption, and if a son, an heir through God. An heir, H-E-I-R, an heir. Well, who is God? An heir of God. An heir of Jesus Christ, an heir through God. Well, who's God? He's the owner of everything. And He's made a promise to you. He's, he's included you as an heir of God. Like all of God's stuff is like the family. It's what the family owns. You're part of the rich, just family in the universe. Now, the, diff the distinction is, is don't think that it means here and now. Some people tell you that becoming a Christian means you're going to be rich here and now. And that may or may not be the case. That's, that's not the point. The point is what He's really promising you is an e eternal inheritance. Forever stuff. Okay, so some people... I, I want to say that this gets confusing because we live, we live in America and so prosperity is available to us. And... Prosperity in and of itself is not wrong. Prosperity is also neither a measure of your godliness. You're not, you can't say in the prosperity gospel, the idea is look at the preacher who has his own jet and you can have that too if you'll worship Jesus. I'll even send you a, a prayer blanket I touched. And they make these ridiculous promises. And they promise you worldly prosperity as a sign that God is with you. And that's, that's, that's from hell. That is not of God. Because God doesn't say that that's a sign of... As a matter of fact, that might be a sign of... You know, Satan will make the same deal with you. He says, if you'll sell your soul to me, I'll give you worldly prosperity. So worldly prosperity can't be the measure of the favor of God. What's a measure of the favorable God is your contentment with God running your life. And it may be that you go through a really, really, really hard life. It may be that you're born in a war-torn nation. It may be that your children are going to starve before they get to be four. 
There are people following God in every imaginable situation. So the circumstances can't be the measure of your spiritual prosperity. Some of you, God has no problem. Some of you, there are people that God will prosper because He's given them the heart to give generously. And there's others that prosperity would kill them. They would be worldly and that's all they would think about. And so the point is, God has promised to us, regardless of whether we live a great life, some people, you know, I, I, I'm still, by the grace of God, I'm still able to be very physically active. I'm very thankful for that. But I don't think it's because of any secret um, relationship I have with God. For whatever reason, it serves His purposes. But when I see someone else who doesn't have the same ability to walk around, they don't have the same eyesight I have, they don't have the ability to do certain things. I am often humbled by the way some of them love God so much more than I do. And I am often broken in my pride and it's like, Lord God, man, praise you that that person is not a grumbler and a complainer. They have taken the lot that you've given them in life and they have redeemed it for your glory. And they love you and walk with you. And I'm just like, I am in awe of that. And so the prosperity that God promises to you isn't the here and now. You may or may not have plenty. You may have, you know, you may have very hard circumstances in your life. And you may be one of those people that seems like everything you do seems to go right. But that makes no difference. That's simply the circumstance in which you live out your devotion to God. And all of our circumstances are different. So, okay, so let me just conclude. This is all about what Jesus came to do. Um, just ten little things I was kind of noticing when I was looking at this passage. And I, I hope you see them now when you see Jesus. I hope you have a much fuller appreciation of Christmas. I hope when you look at Christ and you think, what did that? why do we love this little baby so much? Why do we love him? And we need to be able to tell the answer why the world. It's not because he was cute. It's not because of his nationality. It's not because of his um, worldly circumstances. Oh, he was born poor in a stable. I hope you have a much richer theology of Christmas. And you can just see now, man, I love God for doing this for me. I love God. I love Jesus. I love you that you surrendered to this for me. I love that you became this baby and you placed yourself under the law to redeem me, the lawbreaker, and to take the curse that I deserve. I love that you wanted me to be full of the Holy Spirit and you send the Spirit to me. I love that you've promised me and you have a future plan for me that's way wealthier than anything this world could offer. I choose you. I choose you. I want to be adopted. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. I want to give the legal right there's no one else I can trust my life to, my future to, my riches to. Everything else is fleeting. I run to you. And we see Christ. And we see that the birth of Jesus was in a sequence of succession of the plan of God that included Christ's coming, His death, His resurrection, and His return. It's all tied together. The birth of Christ is part of that. You see that? It's part of a much bigger picture. Do you, does you not see that and you want to worship him for it? You want to worship him for it? Well, let, let's give him praise now. We're going to sing and I just want to make it clear that if there's anyone here
that you've never understood this legal component of being saved. And you're like going, no, I, I, I renounce my old ways and I want to give my heart legally. That Jesus Christ dying on the cross has made this opportunity available to you. And you can today. You can say, Lord God, I want to legally, I'm all in. I'm ready to sign over the right of my life to you. And that's what faith is. I believe in you so much that I'm signing my life over you in your care. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for so many of the, um, these little elements that maybe when we think of Christmas, we don't initially think of that. But help us to have a full-orbed, healthy theology of Christmas. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And thank you for the future that we now have. Dwell in us, God, even now as we sing your praise and lift up your name, as we lift up the name of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.